literally, so, just want to let you all know that um, I'm uh, preaching live this morning, so I just encourage you to remain muted for the sake of the recording, and um, and also remind you, as Pastor Paul mentioned, that we will be observing the Lord's uh, table, then uh, following the message and and the music that comes directly after that. So um, you might want to think about what you have on hand that you can use to participate that way. So having said that, we'll begin with the message. You also might want to reduce your view up in the top right-hand corner so that it's just on the speaker view. And you can push me right up in the right-hand corner there and hopefully see the slides well. Well, so just as uh, Pastor Paul mentioned, uh, we have much to enjoy as we look outside. We see the weather turning a little bit. Things are getting warmer. I know that in uh, our garden, we have lavender in full bloom, which is something I really love. I'm just uh, uh, lavender and roses are a couple of my favorite plants. And so we try to keep those around a little bit. And those are in full bloom right now. It's beautiful signs of of the changing seasons. And I anticipate now we're in October. So I think, uh, you know, later this month, we might begin to see the jacarandas blooming. And that's always been kind of since we've moved here and learned what those beautiful trees were. It's been kind of a family game to see who gets to spot the first blooming jacaranda uh, as we uh, move around town. And hopefully we'll be able to do a little bit of that soon. Uh, we really enjoy those very much. My mind goes back to um, our family and friends back in the United States, Angie and I, of course, being from North America, uh, when we come to this Sunday, especially when we have the time change, we're thinking of how here we're springing forward and on the clock and our friends and family back home, whether it's this Sunday or sometime in the near future, will be falling back an hour. And, and right about now, as our weather is warming, their weather is cooling and there comes a day every year that you walk outside, especially if you live up in the Midwest. We lived in Illinois and, and Michigan for a number of years. Angie grew up in Minnesota. And up in those uh, northern Midwestern states, every year, sometime around this time of year, there's a day when you walk outside and all of a sudden you breathe the air and know this is the real beginning of autumn. The air has a different cool freshness to it, a certain smell. And then, you know, it's time for, uh, for the sweaters to come out of storage. And this is an exciting thing for the Midwestern uh, folk. Uh, the sweaters come out of the closet, out of the bottom drawer, out of the underbed storage. You check for moth holes and you uh, see if it still fits. And, and you start wearing that uh, warmer autumn weather, the fall weather that we uh, the weather clothes that we enjoy so much there and other things then begin to build the anticipation of a very special feature of the autumn in America. The anticipation builds in a whole variety of ways in different fronts. You begin to, especially in October, as we've come to October, you begin to see this odd little image everywhere you go. It's the image of a pumpkin and what we call a pumpkin, a big round orange thing. And you see them in storefront windows, you see them in advertisement pages, uh, you see them it, just all over the place. They begin to show up in people's decorations and so on. And, and so it triggers a certain anticipation. Uh, other things begin to happen. Farmers are really, really getting busy at this time. Uh, there are farmers who are going out and, and feeling those 
those heads of corn that are beginning to shape up on the stalks out there. Uh, there are those that are uh, wading through um, cranberry bogs and looking at how those cranberries are shaping up. There are those that are out there uh, checking out just how plump the turkeys are becoming. And all of these things lead to the anticipation or build the anticipation to this one very special day when about 1.5 billion pounds of pumpkin is consumed. Thanksgiving Day, American Thanksgiving. Family and friends gather together and uh, churches gather together and sing songs of, of praise and thanksgiving for God's provision. And this great celebration feast is enjoyed together. Now, if you don't know the tradition and all the significance of Thanksgiving Day in America, it is particularly important uh, to recognize that it has a historical basis in, uh, in the first um, full year cycle, uh, the completion of the first full year cycle of the Puritans who had traveled from England to uh, what we now know as, as North America, as the United States. And uh, those who survived the first winter there, and it was very, very difficult, um, were able to prepare for the next winter much better th thanks to the help of the Native Americans who befriended them and taught them about how to grow corn and taught them that those crazy looking big old birds that waddled around on the ground in the woods were good to eat and and introduced them to a number of other things that that helped them and how to build houses that would endure the winters and and so on and so when that harvest came around um, right around this time of year and in the weeks to follow as they gathered those things in they were so thankful because these uh, individuals who had come to America had come to America for one primary purpose. And that was that they were seeking to be able to exercise freedom of religion. That was their primary concern. And they had been oppressed. They had lived under a government that had grown too controlling that had begun to try to dictate in too many ways how they were allowed to worship and, and whether or not they were allowed to uh, gather together with, without special sanction from the government and things like that. And so these people had fled that oppression and had come to this new country and now they had survived together and they were thankful to God as their provider. And so they gathered these things in and they invited them their Native American friends, and together they had a great feast at which they prayed and they sang and they thanked God for his provision for that year and for the freedoms that they were enjoying. That is a day that has uh, remained very significant to Americans, and I can't help but think of it when I come around this time of year because of the many years of programming growing up in America. October means Thanksgiving is coming. It's always the third Thursday of, of November. And the anticipation begins to build even now as those pumpkins are growing and beginning to show up in the shops and in decorations everywhere. It is important for us all, no matter where we live, particularly if we are believers, to remember, as we were reminded this morning by Pastor Paul in the pastoral prayer, we need to remember to be thankful. It is always such an important thing for us as God's people that we remember that that is a significant uh, thing to observe, Thanksgiving. So this isn't a Thanksgiving message exactly, but it is interesting that we 
come to a feast in our study in the book of Leviticus that its primary focus is Thanksgiving. And so this is a, a great reminder for us. Now, just by a little bit of way of, of reminder, as we've uh, launched into the book of Leviticus, we have seen, I'll put up some of the uh, previous uh, outline here. We are in this um, portion here where we are talking about approaching God through sacrificial offerings. And the first few chapters of the book are about this. And uh, last time, uh, after observing the uh, brief introduction to the book where God spoke to Moses in the newly built tabernacle, keep in mind, remember, this is when the tabernacle has just been completed. Leviticus follows Exodus directly. And the events at the very beginning of Leviticus are simply about a month after the completion of, of the tabernacle. And um, so God had filled the tabernacle with his presence. Moses alone at this point was able to approach God as he had been through the other tent of meeting that, that was apart from the camp of the people where Moses had gone and, and met with God face to face. And then he would return with veiled face because of the, of the, the frightful glow that came from his skin after he had been spent time with God in that way. Well, now he's in the tabernacle and God speaks to him and says, these are the things I want you to tell my people. And I want you to tell to the priests. And so God begins to lay out the instructions for how people can approach him properly through the sacrificial system that he was laying out for them. And we see that there are five uh, key sacrificial offerings in the law that God gave to Moses. And, um, we looked at a little bit of a chart last time, and I'm not going to lay them all out uh, again now because we'll come to them in due time. But the first one was the burnt offering that we looked at, and um, we talked about some of the specifics of, of that and how it was kind of the most central uh, key ongoing sacrifice. That it was generally a sacrifice for, for sin, not necessarily for specific sin, but acknowledgement of the fact that all people are sinners, all fall short of the glory of God, as, as Paul states it later in Romans. And so this burnt offering was the first thing that, that people brought. And it was to be burning at all times and all through the night, in fact. And the instructions are, are given in chapter six for the priests to attend to that, that it burned through the night and then to clear all those ashes away first thing in the morning and to haul those things outside of the tabernacle and out to a clean place out on, uh, out on the edge of camp and, and, and things began again for the next day. And so it was perpetual sacrifice, this burnt offering, which uh, had to be a perfect male um, animal. We come now to the next offering, which is known as the grain offering, or depending on your translation, it might be called the cereal offering or something like that. And the cereal offering, this is the one offering of the five that doesn't involve blood sacrifice. This is the one food type of, of offering that didn't involve um, animals. And uh, it had a very special purpose. And we're going to have a look at that. And I want to begin just by reading the relevant texts. And so if you will take your own copy of scripture, it's long enough that I have not put it all on the slides. I'll invite you to find your own copy of scripture and follow along. And so we will be reading Leviticus chapter two, uh, the entire chapter, which is 16 verses. And then we will hop over to chapter six, verses 14 through 23, which is the uh, second portion of uh, in these first chapters that addresses this offering. If you'll uh, 
you may recall that I had mentioned before that the first few chapters are the instructions from God through Moses to his people as to their responsibility in regard to the sacrifices. And then in the portion that follows, it is very specific uh, instructions to the priests and their role in facilitating and monitoring and managing these particular sacrifices. So we're going to take the two portions together, what God says to the people about this sacrifice and what God says to the, to the priests about the sacrifice as well. And that will give us the fullest picture of what, uh, what this sacrifice is all about. So the grain offering, chapter 2 of Leviticus, beginning in verse 1, says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priests shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And if you offer grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priests shall burn it as its memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. End of chapter two. Now we move to chapter 6, beginning of verse 14. These are the instructions to the priests. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings 
It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle, and you shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priests from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Well, let's just make a few observations uh, about this, just so that we can understand what God was prescribing for the way in which people would offer thanks and praise through this grain offering. So we're focusing, we have uh, zeroed in here on number two of the list of the five offerings, the grain offering. Well, first we want to observe the varieties that there were of the, of the grain offerings. Uh, we have a couple of general categories. We have uncooked, and uh, that was just bringing the grain. It was to be finely ground flour as we, as we read in the first verses there. And so it was to be prepared, not just raw um, whole grain, but it was to, to be ground up and brought prepared as flour. Uh, that's simple enough for the uncooked. But then there's description of the various uh, cooked forms. Uh, they could be baked in an oven, uh, baked on a griddle, or cooked in a pan. Uh, with all of these things, certain things were in common, which, which we will look at. But these are the options of how the grain offering was to be brought. Well, so having a little delay and then a little too quick of a trigger here with some of my points. There we go. So let's look at these, uh, the particulars. These were the requirements. They were to include olive oil. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily say olive oil in every instance where it's mentioned here, but in other places where it is described, we find that that is the oil particularly that is prescribed. And that is the oil that we saw throughout Exodus that was uh, used for all of the different offerings. So uh, olive oil and frankincense, the frankincense was apparently just brought along with it and it was offered up when all entirely for burning. As I said, all of the frankincense was to be burned on the altar and every grain offering was to have salt. The salt is interesting. Extra comment is made about the salt. We know that the frankincense would have contributed to the, um, the beautiful scent of the aroma of the sacrifice going up to heaven, which, would, which was symbolic of, of God's view of people's worship, that it was uh, like a pleasing aroma to him, these food offerings. God wasn't hungry. He wasn't asking for these things to be burnt up uh, to him to satisfy his hunger, but it was, it was a beautiful aroma to God to see God people offering up their worship to him. And so uh, the frankincense was especially a beautiful uh, giver of aroma, and that, and that was appropriate for this particular offering because it was a Thanksgiving type of offering. And then extra comment is made about salt, that these should never be offered up without salt. In fact, it's referred to as the salt of the covenant. 
Well, that is significant because uh, salt is a symbolic element that was involved in many covenants. Uh, and uh, we've studied covenants to some degree in the past, particularly in, in Exodus. Um, salt was symbolic of that which preserves, that which makes things lasting. And uh, salt was used as a symbol to show the permanence of a covenant, its enduring nature. And so they were to uh, season this grain with salt. Of course, it was good for flavor as well and was also in, in important as a part of the provision of the grain offering, but it had significance. Now a handful, this is the other requirement, as the handful of what was brought was actually burnt on the, the major, the big bronze altar out in the middle of the courtyard of the tabernacle. So imagine this, you have the worshiper coming into the tabernacle, they brought with them this, uh, this grain offering, as we saw in the last verses of, of chapter two, sometimes this was uh, a part of the uh, first fruits offering part of the tithing process but not always um, sometimes it was just offered up as a as a special offering and um, they would bring in this uh, portion whatever it might be of of grain that they have grown that they have ground and many cases that they have cooked in some way and if it's uncooked well then just a scoop a handful of this was to be taken by the by the priest who was at the altar and would throw that onto the altar to be burned as, as a symbol of the portion being given back to God, recognizing God as the giver. And then or if it was wafers, if these, uh, if they were baked on the griddle or baked in the oven or cooked in the pan, a portion of that of a, a commensurate uh, portion was broken off and, and put on the altar. But the rest had another purpose. We'll look at them in a moment. Now the restrictions uh, were very clear that there's to be no yeast and no honey. Now, from greater context, we know that God did not forbid the people from eating yeast at all, but that yeast was uh, had some uh, sometimes symbolic meaning that uh, seems to represent corruption and its and its ability to rapidly spread and grow. So whenever it came to ceremonial feasts and, and ceremonial food, yeast was to be left out as a reminder of the, of the potential dangers of, of corruption. Uh, there were times when they were able to eat yeast in their regular, their regular food, however, but it was not to be burned on the altar. And likewise, honey, which had uh, uh, certain fermenting properties and, and um, association with some elements of worship from, from other nations uh, was to be avoided for the altar sacrifices as well, though the people were certainly allowed to eat honey at other times. This offering was not to involve that, though they were baking cakes, they were not to include yeast or honey in this as it was to be offered up. And the third key restriction was that it was to be eaten in the tabernacle. It was to be eaten really only by um, the Aaronic priests in the tabernacle. In fact, it had to be male members of Aaron's family who were serving as the priests. And just a little bit of a side note to understand the uh, general priestly system there. We'll talk more about it later, but um, if you have never made the distinction, uh, there's a difference between the Levites and the priests. And sometimes in scripture, you'll see it mentioned that way where they're mentioned separately, but grouped the Levites and the priests or the priests and the Levites. Well, 
Aaron, and of course, well, Moses, because they were brothers, uh, they were from the tribe of Levi. And in God's uh, structure and ordination, if you remember following the, the events of the, the golden calf in the wilderness, it was, the, it was their clan, their tribe that stepped up to uh, cross that line in the sand to stand with Moses and, and say, uh, we're going to be on God's side and we, you know, we will do what is right, and what is called upon. And they were uh, commissioned to uh, bring judgment on the people for God uh, in as a result of the gross sin that had been committed. And from that time, that tribe became a dedicated tribe to God's service. And so as the tabernacle was built, the tribe of, of Levites became uh, a whole support structure to the priests. Now, the priests particularly began with Aaron and his sons, and it would be his male descendants, specifically the Aaron's family, were the ones who were uh, appointed by God to be the priests of the people of Israel in perpetuity. Uh, if a person wasn't directly from the line of Aaron among the Levites, then they could not be qualified to be a priest. But anyone, any male from the tribe of Levi um, was given responsibilities to serve as an assistant to the priests. And so they helped in the many aspects of the tabernacle. They helped to set the tabernacle up and to break it down and to transport it. And, and they did many of the, just the, the regular daily chores that needed to be done throughout the tabernacle complex and later the temple complex. And so they were a dedicated group of servants. This particular offering as it was given was a specific provision for the priests. This was part of God's design that this grain would be brought in and it would be a regular flowing thing that would be coming from the people. They would be bringing in these, these grain offerings that memorial portion as it referred to in this, in this text was offered up to the Lord and all the rest of it was given to the priests that were serving at that time. And they were to eat it while they were serving there in the tabernacle. Now, there are historians who believe that the while well, we see our, our diagrams of the tabernacle and the, the tent that surrounded and the exact placement of the of the major furniture there, like the bronze altar and the lathe, uh, the lave of water and so on. Um, it is believed that there were potentially other shelters, uh, other lesser tents within that interior court and complex uh, places in which the uh, Levites and priests would uh, retreat from the sun and, and eat their meals and things like that. But it was to be within the confines of the tabernacle in general that they were to eat this because it was very special. Well, what is the specialness of it, the significance in particular? Well, we see that it's an expression of thanksgiving. And as it is used and referred to throughout scripture, it's clear that this was a really a free will kind of offering. This was something that was brought particularly to say thanks to God and just an expression of, of gratefulness. It was an acknowledgement that God is the provider. He's the one from whom people uh, receive their food and, and their provision. And even the, the baking of these unleavened cakes uh, served as a reminder of God's provision in the, in the wilderness when he had sent manna, uh, which just was 
cooked together as kind of a, a basic flat unleavened bread and uh, wafers and that sort of thing. And so these were reminders for the people, as was the bread of the presence that was prescribed to be in the inner part of the of the temple, of the tabernacle tent, the holy of holies, or the holy place rather. Um, so this was a reminder of where things come from as it was offered up. And lastly, it was something that was part of God's ordained provision for the priests. And it's interesting that when mention is made in chapter two, it actually is repeated again in chapter six, but in chapter two in particular, if you have access to that easily, we see that in verses three and 10, both times it talks about the fact that the rest of the grain offering was to go to Aaron and his sons. Attached to that statement is, that it is a most holy portion or a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. God was stressing in a way to the people that the provision for his servants was a holy thing, something to be guarded, something to be held as sacred, as extremely important. It was a most holy thing. He puts the superlative on that. So this was something that was important in God's economy, was that God's people provided through their giving for his servants who were serving in the tabernacle as those representatives of the people to God and God to the people. So that is the, the particular significance of that. Well, as we looked in the last time at the contrast between these five sacrificial offerings of the system there in the tabernacle uh, we see that against against the new testament where we have one sacrificial offering of grace and i'm going to keep bringing this back for each one of the for each one of the sacrifices because uh, as we were reminded in in the book of hebrews and especially in chapters 9 and 10 in the book of hebrews the whole tabernacle system and all the sacrifices are are treated as a foreshadowing, as, as actually a shadow of the real things that were to come. All of these sacrifices are in some way intended to point to the fulfillment in Christ as the Messiah. So while we have these different sacrifices and their different purposes, we see in, in each and every case that there is a special way in which Jesus was the, the answer or the fulfillment the completion, the perfection of those things when he came. So we have the five sacrificial offerings of the law, and then we have the one sacrificial offering of grace, which is Jesus, revealed in different ways. Uh, before, we saw in particular that Jesus was revealed as God's perfect lamb, because we looked at that burnt offering and that perfect lamb that had to be uh, sacrifice, the lamb or bullock, but that perfect male flawless sacrifice that had to be offered up and was burnt entirely, not eaten by anyone whatsoever. It was purely for God's satisfaction. And then we see that declaration of who Jesus is when he came on the scene and, and John the Baptist called everyone's attention to him and said, look everyone, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the permanent solution, the ultimate final sacrifice for sin jesus christ god's perfect lamb but now in this sacrifice we see jesus christ we're reminded that jesus was the bread of heaven 
in John chapter six, verses 48 through 51. And, and uh, without getting deeply into that context, we'll skip to verse 58. But we see here this declaration of Christ, this claim for himself that he is that special bread, that great provision. And he makes the, he draws the link. He connects the dots between uh, the provision of God in the, in the wilderness through manna and, and himself as the ultimate provision from God. So we read John 6, verse 41 through 51 and 58, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread that came down from heaven, verse 58. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We see the word bread was used in these languages as a little bit more of a general term. We have maybe some narrow uh, concept of exactly what bread is, but the manna wasn't made really of, of flour or grain and not baked with yeast or anything like that, and yet it was called bread. Um, anything that was eaten that was produced from grain, even if it was just flat, um, you know, baked flour with oil was, was known as bread. And here Jesus uh, even uses that term just to, to reference that which is life-sustaining, even in reference to his sacrifice on the cross, his own flesh as the bread, the provision, in other words, that comes from heaven. So Jesus is that perfect fulfillment, that one to whom that sacrifice was pointing. So, yes, it had a purpose of thanksgiving. It was an acknowledgement of God as, as the provider, and, and yet not just in the everyday sense of provision, but in the looking forward sense of what God was going to do to provide life for his people, ultimately, through that perfect sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is a brief message. It's, it's just a relatively simple offering or sacrifice that is that was prescribed for the people, and yet is, uh, its significance should not be measured by its brevity, because it was something that was offered up by the people voluntarily, and yet God prescribed exactly. He encouraged it to happen, obviously, by prescribing the sacrifice and, and telling them exactly how it should be executed and what should be, what should be offered and how it should be offered, because this is all about how to approach God through the sacrifices according to God's standards, because he is the one who sets the standards. He is the Holy one and we are all sinners. And so God lets us know graciously how we can approach him. He told the Israelites how they could approach him in their time. And he has given us access to himself that is different in the new Testament, especially. So these are just a few thoughts to take away from this brief message today. First of all, is that a vital part of worship is recognizing our dependence on God and giving thanks. And this was, this was this part of it. It, was, it. Our worship with God, our relationship with God, he doesn't desire necessarily that it is all about uh, groveling. It's not all about recognizing that 
we are sinners and, and that a sacrifice is needed. Though those are very important things to understand, and we are to be reminded of those things regularly. But God also desired a relationship with people, and, and he wanted people to, to worship him because he is the giver. He is the one who provides. In the Psalms, people are encouraged to, to worship and praise Yahweh only because uh, idols that people are prone to worship, they're worthless. They do nothing for you. Whereas the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, is the one who gives life, who gives provision, who gives love, even through the ultimate sacrifice at his own cost, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so even back in this sacrificial system in the Old Testament, people were encouraged to express thanksgiving and love to God through this, through this sacrifice. And and this sacrifice was not something that was burnt up entirely on the altar and just, you might say, wasted in some way. Some people might look at it that way. But, but this was actually saying thanks to God through God's servants by giving gifts for their benefit as well. Well, we see in Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17, this, um, this idea of the importance of thanks as part of of worship. And so I want us to look at these verses here. Notice how many times it's it's stated. Paul writes to the church in Colossae saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. To what were you called? Well, the peace of Christ. You're called to the peace of Christ together as one body as of believers. That's a good thing for us to reflect on maybe for a moment. But he says, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, thanks, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Second mention. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So embedded throughout and and saturating uh, the elements of of worship and relationship between god's people and god himself is supposed to be thanks thanksgiving thankfulness so that is a vital part of worship and we should always be reminded of that notice also from this that it has always been god's design for his people's giving to provide for his servants we see that principle reinforced once again, as we've seen that this was part of God's provision for the priests in the tabernacle of that time through that particular sacrifice. Um, we also see in the New Testament this principle, uh, as Paul writes to Timothy, instructing him as how he is to teach this, this new church that had been planted, and the Timothy was left to, to pastor. He was to be training up elders and instructing the people and the elders alike as to how to live and, and function together as, as believers in Christ, as a community of believers. And he said, let uh, the elders, the term that is used interchangeably with, with overseers, these are the pastors, uh, the leaders of the, the spiritual leaders of the church, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a reference back to Old Testament law. And says the laborer deserves his wages. 
So both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that as God's design for his people's giving to provide for his servants who serve the people and God. Thirdly, I just want to challenge uh, all of you as I challenge myself to consider once again, what is our view of the resources God has given you? What is your view of the resources God has given you? You know, we live in a, if we're honest, we live in a rather materialistic society. The Western world has been so blessed by God. We enjoy so many comforts. Uh, we have so much more than what we need. And yet, somehow, we so easily become entitled. It's funny how it's one of those relevant, uh, uh, relative, I should say, relative things. You know, we may watch, we may see some, some moments or even just, uh, you know, um, little blurbs or trailers or, or teasers for for certain reality shows and we see uh, perhaps some celebrity brats who are you know pitching a fit of some sort over you know whether or not they were given the right kind of water or whether or not uh, all the creature comforts have been laid out for them to which they have become accustomed and we and we you know tisk and we and we nod our heads and say, oh what spoiled brats but you know if if someone from a third world country were to look at the things that we complain about, I think they would have to come to the same kind of conclusion about us. So often, you know, we've got to have just the right looking furniture and, and we've got to have just the right looking clothes. And we've got to drive the right car. and We've got to have the right mobile and, and on and on it goes. And, and we tend to forget to be thankful that God provides all things for us. And I think we tend very easily to begin to think of all of the things that we have as just being ours to do with entirely as we please. You know, I earned this. You know, I worked hard for this. This, this is mine. This is due to my ingenuity, my labor, my, my uh, study, my advancement with, you know, within my uh, field of, of work and, and profession. And yet, we forget that God is the one who allowed us to be born in a country that would afford us privileges like that. God is the one who caused us to be born in a place or to bring us to the place where we would have the nutrition to survive long enough to achieve these things. God's the one who's given us the good mind and the healthy bodies and the creativity, and the intelligence, and the opportunities for education, the opportunities for work. All of these things are gifts from his hand. And so really, there's just nothing that we have that is really down to us. Sure, we have a hand. We have a responsibility to be diligent and, and resourceful and, and uh, good stewards of the things that God has given us. And, and so there are rewards that come from those things. And, and that's appropriate. And it's right to acknowledge those sorts of things. But ultimately, we must remember that, that all things come from him. Again, I'm reminded of the, you know, the, the old hymn line, not have I gotten, but what I received. That applies to grace, of course, for salvation, but really applies to everything. Nothing, not have I gotten, there's nothing I have that wasn't in some way, ultimately a gift from God, perhaps through others, just as these provisions for the priests were through the hands of God's people. They were 
responsible to bring these gifts to provide for the priests. And, and there are other sacrifices, portions of which were for the provision of the, not only the priests, but all the Levites and for all their families as well. God provided for them all through this, through this system. But all of us should be reminded that the things that we have are not really truly ours just to do with as entirely as we please. God has given us so much. We should consider, don't we have some responsibility before God for the way we use our resources? Now, I don't know what the exact application may be. I'm not here to try to legalistically tell you exactly what you should do with your funds and to whom you should give it and how much and how you should go about it and, and all of that. We do live in a time of grace, but I think the principle is something that we need to be faithful to consider, that we need to uh, come before God with the things he's given us and, and lift them up with open hands rather than grasping hands. We should, we should hold these things lightly that God gives us and allow him to take back whatever he wants and allow him to guide us to use these things however he wants for the benefit of others or to the advancement of, of, of his ministry in whatever way he might lead and guide us to do that. Remember that we have nothing that wasn't given to us. So the grain offering has relevance for us. The grain offering of the Old Testament sacrificial system is a reminder to us to be thankful, to recognize that God is the provider of all things, to be reminded that the ultimate provision from God, the ultimate sacrifice for life comes through Jesus Christ. He is the one who offered himself up and the one that fulfilled these pictures of the Old Testament of God as the provider of all things. He's the bread of heaven, the provider of eternal life. And so we need to remember that. And, and if you have not received that, that bread, if you haven't received God, Christ's invitation to partake of him, of the sacrifice that he has made for you, then I encourage you to consider that today, to acknowledge God as the provider of all things, especially of life eternal. That comes through the gift of Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you have given us these images in the Old Testament. In this scripture, we see how you revealed yourself to your people Israel through the systems that you put in place for them, through the structure of the tabernacle, through the system of the sacrifices, and and through these things, you helped your people to know what kind of God you are. You helped them to recognize and always remember the important principles uh, that should guide people's lives. And today, as we reflect on the grain offering, we are reminded that you are the source of every good thing, of every provision, of every gift, and that we owe a portion of that back to you in thanks, and that we should allow you to guide us to use these resources, the things you have given us, that we should uh, give uh, portions back for you, for your service to achieve what you want to through various ministries and, and in the lives of other people. So help us to remember whose resources these are. Help us not to be grasping, but rather grateful. So remind us always to give thanks as a part of our a part of our worship to remember how blessed we are not only those of us who are perhaps more material materially blessed than the vast majority of people around the world um, but also because of the great spiritual blessing with which you have blessed us 
this gift of life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Help us always to be thankful. Forgive us for the many times that we slip into ungratefulness, into complaining, into just being spoiled and not recognizing your goodness to us in our lives. Help us to remember to worship you with thanksgiving at all times. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.